The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, you betcha, yeah. If it's made in Minnesota, who's making it and how? Yeah, you got that right. It's the makers of Minnesota, focusing on the products and services uniquely made in Minnesota, and conversations with the makers, entrepreneurs, and innovators in Minnesota about how they conceived of their products and how they brought them to market. With Stephanie Hansen, it's the makers of Minnesota. Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen, and you're listening to Makers of Minnesota, and we are on episode 25, and I am here with my friend Dave Ostland, and Dave is a serial entrepreneur. Um, you may recognize him from some of his other businesses that I'll let him get into, but he has a new business venture that he's working on called Belly Up. You can find it online at Get Belly Up, but it's a dining restaurant concept, and it's very interesting that it's coming at this time because it's kind of in a genre of other like ideas that we're seeing formulate. Dave, welcome to the show. Stephanie, thanks for having me. Yeah, Good welcome to, to the again. podcast. Um, there are kind of a new proliferation of offer sampling type concepts that are coming in the restaurant and the beverage industry. Um, tell me a little bit about Belly Up and sort of how you came to the idea, or had you heard about it from somewhere else? Well, yeah, yeah. I know you're a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my mind is always going. It's always coming up with new ideas. Some of them are crazy. Some of them are great. Some of them are stupid. Some of them are, um, you know, wonderful. And this one falls right into the crazy, wonderful, great one, I think. You know, I have a business partner, Noah Miwa, who yep. uh, we started coming up with a couple other concepts back last March, April. And they were based off extensions of other products that I had had. And so we were working. And your original company is Direct Line Services, right? Direct Line Services. And tell me, because you're a serial entrepreneur, tell me about the other companies you've done that people listening to the podcast might be aware of. Well, Direct Line Services was kind of the umbrella company for Twin Cities Food Finds, Mm -hmm. which was a, at, at the time, the number one or number two website in town for restaurant referral services. And... You know, that was in the in the 2000s, early 2010s yep. era. Uh, a magazine, Twin Cities Food Finds, that also, you know, was a 110-restaurant menu book. Yeah, that, that it was huge. Retail and, and, and gave the concierge at hotels. And then um, we also have, or I still have, the whole network of restaurant menu and map brochures that are in hotels all over the Twin Cities. And that's kind of the main core yep. of all of it. And we've done uh, reserve perks, which was a reservation system that also gave people an automatic 30% discount, which was very successful. But as all things successful, there were a lot of negatives to it, so it didn't last very long. Yep. And uh, I had uh, I bought into dealstork.com, which at the very beginning came it actually hit the same month that, that Groupon hit in the Twin Cities. Okay. And it was a daily deal site, and I bought into it because I kind of thought that, you know, being local instead of being from D.C. like Living Social was or uh, from Chicago like Groupon was, you could, could keep the money local. I understood restaurants more. I could give restaurants a lower price point. Yep. And so that worked really well for a couple of years and just until it just didn't start working for people anymore. And then it kind of turned gross. You know, yeah. it felt pretty. And, and then, then I sold it and the people who bought it couldn't manage it and we clawed it back. But by that time, it's only, uh, you know, it's a. It's an email database that's pretty much useless. Yep. And so 
I've gone on to, I've, I've got, well, dinelot.com. Did I mention that already? No, dinelot? Dine, D-I-N-E-L-O-T. Dinelot, okay. Which is actually, it's kind of a private discount program for travelers in the Twin Cities. So when you go to certain hotels, they will hand you a card to go to the dinelot.com slash, then there's private code, and it accesses a bunch of discounts that they can go to different restaurants and redeem. Okay. But the general public doesn't really know about Dine sure. Lot, even though there is a public form of Dine Lot. We don't push that. Okay. It's all, it's all private. And so, you know, I, I... Like I said, you're a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't you have a water company at some point, too? Well, I I had started a water company uh, called Avivar, uh, Crystal Artesian Water, and I, I, I was going to import water from Tequila, Mexico, from underneath the mantle. The uh, volcano of tequila, and so working with the guys down there, the actual company that had had access to the aquifer, yeah. and was uh, the Arete Tequila Company, um, and so I'd contracted with them to utilize their bottle shape and kind of their look, but instead of having it be called Sante Organique, which that's what they were calling it, I was going to import it as uh, as Avivar. Okay, and so that went really well until they decided that. Avivar was a better name for their Spanish sourced water than Sante Organique, which is a French name. <laughs> and they said, you know what? We'll still give you the water and you can have, you know, North America. We're going to keep Mexico and South America and, and we're going to do Avivar down here. I'm like, yeah, but that's kind of my trademark. And so, you know, what am I going to do? Sue Mexico? Right, you know, right. There's somebody in Mexico and <laughs> it's just not, it doesn't work that way. So really never, even though I ended up getting into 400 stores, the contract for 400 stores, I didn't get into them. Yeah. That, that. So that's another great idea, import water from Mexico, which was successful and then all of a sudden wasn't. Yep. But uh, this one's going to be. Well, and I love that you, I mean, this is how your mind works and you're continually thinking up ideas. I know you've made money on some of ideas, probably lost money on some of these ideas, but that is kind of what a serial entrepreneur is. Does it? Do you wish some days that you could just like go to work and turn this off? No, no, never. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't even, even in the worst of times when I think of, oh my God, I, I, the minute I think of, I have to be at an eight o'clock meeting on a Monday morning, or I have to be at a four thirty meeting on a Friday, or I can't spend seven weeks a year in Mexico or you know over to Hong Kong every yep. year. Like, nope, not not even an option. Okay, so that's a good perspective for you to have that. It's got good times and it's got bad times, but all in all, they're my times. And that, that, that's that's it, too. You know, when you've got kind of a, a head like mine works, which I can't really explain. Heck, my wife of, you know, a dozen years doesn't even know how my head works yet. My kids kind of do, but, you know, they're seven, so they get it. <laughs> they're children. <laughs> they're children. <laughs> Some of us never grow up. Um, yeah, it's, it's just how you, you kind of have to forge your own path and figure out what works for you. And that's what I do. And sometimes what works for me doesn't work and sometimes it does you know and yeah this... that's the life of an entrepreneur right so you, As you know yeah i do and we i mean oh god we talk about some of our failed ideas and we laugh now but at the time you know they all sounded like great ideas um let's talk about belly up there is a new kind of proliferation of sampling memberships let's call them how do you, did you see this somewhere else and you were like, oh, I can do that better? Or how did you conceive of Belly Up? Well, right. I mean, you know, 
nobody's idea is 100% completely unique. No. And so I was actually in New York last winter and ran across a cocktail membership called Hooch, which I think is like $10 a month and you can get free drink at 30 restaurants a month. I mean, it's something crazy. Yeah. And so I was kind of intrigued by them. So I called a couple of the restaurants and said, does this really work for you? And they said, yeah, you know, it's getting off the ground and, and people are coming in. And, sure. And most people, and I, the website actually said that, the average person who comes in and redeems a free drink spends $34. I said, is that true? I said, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's $34 or if it's more or less, but most people do spend more. So that was always in the kind of the back of my mind. And then, um, you know, I don't re- – it's funny thing is I don't really drink. Yeah. You know, I used to a lot, and that's why I don't anymore. But, um, you know, there is an, another craft program in town that does a very good job with craft beer, but it's focused really on the hipster market and more on bars. Okay. So I, I thought, you know, there's a way to, since I've always been real more focused on restaurants, there's got to be a way to bring in more higher level restaurants with a craft program. Does it include beer or does it just include cocktails or does it do both? Yeah. Which I ended up doing both. And my business partner, Noah Mia, was all part of this thing too, you know, as we're talking about it and talking through it. And then, you know, Noah is, says, we should bring in the art community into this thing. I'm like, well, how do you envision that working? And he um, talked to a couple of his artists, friends, because he's from MCAD and hangs out with mm-hmm. the, you know, a lot of these guys. And they love this concept of getting free craft drinks at a whole bunch of different ref- restaurants in town. They said, well, we should make our own, you know, private run of glasses. I'll paint one for you and then I'll paint one for you. And you know, so anybody that is part of Belly Up gets custom created glassware by pretty well-known artists in town. Right. You know? And so if you get the beer belly, which is 25 beers at 25 different locations, mostly restaurants, a lot of little higher-end bars, you know, a couple of tap rooms, you also get a four-pack of, of pint glasses that are each have nothing to do with each other, but as a four-pack, really are Minnesota- food and drink related. Yeah, and they're those, cool. Those get mailed to you. Yeah, they're really cool. So do you have to bring your glass in to the participating bar? No, no. Uh, all you do, you go in with your Belly Up app that you've downloaded and you've, you've purchased and you show them that you get a free drink. On my phone. On, on your phone. They click redeemed. You get your drink. You know, hopefully you stick around, have some food, have some more drinks and uh, then you leave. We mail the glassware to you now. Okay. So it's out of the restaurant's hands. And so you ship me this package and then the I package. download my app and I can go into 25 restaurants and get a free beer essentially for how much is my beer membership? The, well, for the 25 beers at 25 restaurants, including the four glasses, it's $35 for 2017. Wow, that's cheap. Yeah. And then the 25 craft cocktails. So there's beer belly. There's beer belly and then there's booze belly. Okay. And Booze Belly's 25 craft cocktails, and the the restaurants that are partners in there are just really high-end restaurants, too, that are very food-focused. And they, um, lost my train of thought here, they will give an opportunity, you know, you might have three or four or five different uh, drinks that they'll have available to you that are their signature drinks. So they can curate and have a signature drink for you. So you go in. Some are doing that, yep. Yep. Some are doing their, you know. We're offering our seasonal drinks. Yep. But at least you can go to 25 different places that have tw- 25 drinks that nobody else has because it's really their signature 
cocktails. And a craft cocktail is at least ten dollars usually. Yeah, we kind of we kind of looked at it, and and we're looking at eleven to twelve dollar range on average. I mean, sometimes if you're going to go in someplace at happy hour, you might be able to get that cocktail at eight bucks, and sometimes it's you know a twenty five dollar cocktail. So doing math, it's like you get twenty five cocktails at ten bucks a shot. It's, it's about, about a two hundred and fifty dollar value plus the glasses. Yeah, and, yeah. And what's the value of the glasses? It really is. You know, I mean. Priceless, because they have the cool art on them. It, that's exactly it. So this is pretty cool. So did you... Well, but we also have... So you've got the beer belly, the okay. beers. You've got the booze belly. But we also have the best belly, which before we met with somebody that both you and I know, uh, we called it the big belly. But she said, you know what? Women don't really want something yeah. associated with a big belly, so I'd get rid of that. So it's now the best belly. And it's, we've combined both of them. So you can get 25 beers, 25 cocktails, $85. And, and then you get the four pack of not only the the tap or the uh, pint glasses, but also four pack of highballs. So you get eight artists made glasses. How cool! And what a great gift idea! It's really yeah, it really is. You know, especially yeah, I look at it like this. I look at it, you know, if you're in Woodbury and you have to go to Edina, now maybe this is going to say you know where, I don't know Edina. Where should we go? Where yeah, should we go eat. Well, you know what? In Beer Belly, there's Barrio, and there's also Layla that's over there. Let's go there. Let's get a, a drink, and let's uh, let's have an appetizer or lunch. Yeah, one of the things that I'm trying to do, and I eat out a ton, so I'm maybe not the best person to ask this question or to market this to, but I am trying to force myself to try new places all the time. Like I really think we have just an amazing food town, and my husband is just the classic, like, let's just go to the same three places we always go to. I know I like them. I know what I'm going to order. And, you know, he'll be adventurous if it's something like this mm-hmm. or if it's a program or, but if I'm just like, hey, let's go to, I don't know, Manello tonight. He'll be like, oh, I don't know. I really don't know. In the Minneapolis. I don't well, know next time he goes that, you got to just say, okay, then I'm calling Dave. <laughs> well, and we'll, we'll I go. do <laughs> actually eat out. A lot with friends, kind of because he's limited and sort of what he wants to try. But he just said to me the other day, he was like, you know, let's just, you know, once a month pick a new place. I was like, who are you? Where did my husband go? Bring him back. His body has been abducted <laughs> by an alien. But people are creatures of habit, but yet they do like to try new things if they're kind of forced a little bit. Right. So what I like about this is it's a gifts, it's a gifty idea, but there's something to show for it. So it's not like you're giving someone a coupon book. Right. No, it's... it's. Uh, you can give them the glasses and explain the program, and that's pretty cool. You go online, you you, you purchase a... Uh, you can purchase a beer belly for one person. You can purchase a, a booze belly for another person. You can get a best belly for yourself, and they'll get it to them in their email. And then we... Ship them the glassware when that's done in February. The glassware won't be ready until February, March. But okay. And I know you're just up. getting launched. Like, didn't you launch just like a week ago? Well, we actually, it, the, the, the true story behind this one is we actually launched it uh, right around the end of November, but we launched it with this really grandiose idea that people would come in each restaurant and walk out with their branded glassware from that restaurant. Okay. And so we were sourcing, we were producing, you know, thousands of glasses for Murray's and thousands of glasses for, you know, Heyday or Constantine or Public. And you're also, and you're looking at, we're making 200,000 glasses and right. storage. And we were willing to do that. But what we really didn't take into consideration and what we found out very quickly is nobody wants 20 glasses or 25 glasses sitting in the cupboard. No. You know, they might want a couple. So people are saying, do we have to take them all? Do we, do we pick and choose which ones we want? You know, 
and we realized there was going to be so much waste. And a lot of the, when we came back to the restaurants and said, you know, we're not doing this glassware. Plus we already had the, the artist rendition glassware. There yep. was going to be a, a special on top of that. They said, you know, forget it. Let's just get rid of this glassware. Program's great the way it is. We actually lowered the price from where it was. So that's why it's only 35 and $55 and yep. 85 now. And so um, we, we, you know, we streamlined it. So let's talk about that. So you now you're traveling. You have this book, The Fine Print of Self-Publishing. It is, by all accounts, and I'm your friend, but I'm. it's fairly stunning to me. It is the Bible yeah, of self-publishing. And you had Hillcrest Media. You also established books.com and well, publish.com, correct? One of the great things I like about you is every time I see you and you introduce me to people, you always give me domain names that cost millions of dollars that I don't own. Okay, I so, thought you did. <laughs> no, I own I did own some good ones. Um I own published.com, bookprinting.com, bookediting.com, and these were all sites that we used. Yeah, so and all... I only think of that because in our I was in the printing and direct mail business and we had lots of domain right. names too. It was like having a super America on every corner. Yes. Yes, and they were, you know, like our, our bookprinting.com site half the business from that site came from people typing bookprinting.com in. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, it's... It, it's so you learned not only about writing, about self-publishing, about running a company, but what you learned that I think is amazing, too, is you really learned about the internet and how people consume the internet, what they're searching for, and how to create a business model based on that. Because if you couldn't have gotten people to the data that they were searching for, none of this would have mattered. Y- yes. But when I started doing this, I was one of the few. If you went to Amazon, type in books on self-publishing today, there's no end. That's an unlimited amount. Yep. When I did it, when I when my book first came out, there were like four books on self-publishing. And no one had ever written a book about the companies that provide self-publishing services. So that part was a total fluke that I happened to write about that. So fast forward uh, 10 years later, you sold the company for $5 million. bucks. Um, $5 million minus uh, $1.5 million, so $3.5 million. What was the minus $1.5? Um, because I don't know where you got that. <laughs> I got an erroneous number. <laughs> you know what? I, I know that the company, I read that it was worth $5 million. Oh. So multiples of earnings and all oh. of that. that oh, no. The revenue sense. was $5 million. And you had 30 employees. I had 30 employees. And you, what I think is neat, too, is you built like a service for these self-publishers. So you legitimately not only said, here's the people that are doing self-publishing, but then you learned the business and you created a oh, yeah. no. infrastructure for them to self-publish. We became, I built my business based on the companies that I reviewed. And that was how one day, I mean, I, May 2006, I was rollerblading at Lake Calhoun. Okay, that's and, funny. And <laughs> I, well, after, I, I used to do it a lot until In- my, Satin yellow shorts by any chance with a headband on? And... <laughs> oh, I, I did used to wear a headband because it was so hot. So hot. Um, but I was rollerblading, and my best ideas came when rollerblading. Although I suffered a really debilitating rollerblading injury in 2009. So, you know. Did you made... get hit by a car or what happened? Um, I had bought a new pair, brand new pair of rollerblades. I mean, right out of the box. From Hoygards, and 
I know we're not really talking about self-publishing, but this is as equally as interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm rollerblading, you know, gliding along, and the clasp, the thing that held the clasp in was defective. And so there's a little part of Lake Calhoun where you kind of go down a little hill, you know, right across from where um, I know, right, the where Calhoun Beach is. Club is. Yep. So I'm going down that hill, and I'm you know a pretty big guy, and I'm going pretty fast. And the boot, the clasp snaps off. And so the boot flies off my foot. Yeah. So now, I mean, I'm on, you know, it's any second until I crash. And so by luck, I did not, I mean, I was pretty, like, my legs were, like, first layer of skin, I'd say, was mostly removed. Hamburger. From both, from, I think my right, from my ankle up to my knee, it was like just totally raw, and I was shaken, and I was, then what's worse, I had to walk back to my car in my socks because I had no... Rollerblades. I had no rollerblades, so I got back to my car, and then a friend of mine had, while I was blading, had called me, so I called her, and I said, and I was like, where are you? She's like, I'm at Trader Joe's. I'm like, I'll stop there. I'm gonna sh- I'll show you my leg. So I pulled behind Trader Joe's, Something happens, and my car keys disappear, and we cannot. I put them on her car. She drives off. I, They fly off. I have to call her. She has to come and get me, take me to my house, get the other keys. So before I go to urgent care, I go back to Hoygaard's. I walk in, and in the back is where they used to sell the rollerblades, and I just put my leg on their counter <laughs> and said, here's what these rollerblades just did to me. And... Uh, then they gave me a full refund. It was a defective rollerblade, but that was, I never rollerbladed again. Really? It was that traumatic? Yeah. It was just, I just, I tried, but I couldn't, That's couldn't get into the flow. So, okay. So anyway, All I have right. this so idea. So you're in roll, the flow in self-publishing. I, in 2006, I have this idea. I get in my, I'm rollerblading. I, I'm like, I have the basic, a basic concept of what my company became but way beyond what I could have imagined. I mean, it was a real simplified version. I call my one developer at the time. I'm like, do you think we could do this? And So we start building it in May. We launched the site in October, although all we had was a front. You couldn't, we didn't have a back-end system, but, you know, we didn't have enough. We only had a few authors. So as people called me to, about my book, I would be like, oh, you know, you want to try us? You, know, you can be a guinea pig, and I'm only going to charge X amount. So that was how so I built my company based on all the stuff I'd learned about all these other companies. So you would eventually design a book cover, edit we did the everything. book, editing, help them put design, it together, marketing, distribution. Printing. And some of the things we did that made us really attractive to the company that bought us was we had a back end system that was very complete and really detailed. So you could put a book through and there were so many moving parts when you publish a book. Like our system, and an author would not see this, but it had 1,800 possible steps. So depending on, you know, if this happens, then this, then Yeah, this. you'd move it through a queue. So, but that was a pretty complicated thing to build. Then we also built a level of distribution that very, almost no self-publishing companies do. Most self-publishing companies just do print-on-demand. Mm-hmm. That's pretty easy to do. But we did it with an actual distributor, and our systems had a talk, and it was a much more complicated Thing so complicated that the company that one of the reasons 
I think they bought us was for the ability to do that and not have to build that. Yeah, because that's when you've built software, custom software, you're usually not the only one who's building it. No. But it's kind of who can get to market first, who ease of use. And then, yeah, you can always build these things. You can replicate and copy. But how much is it going to cost you when it's easier to just buy someone who's already got it? That, I think, is part of what the magic of selling our company was. Same thing, was we had really good software built in and customer service pieces built in. And I think that's what people buy. And you had 30 employees when you were selling. Tell me about the day that you sold the business. Like, how did that feel to you? Well, the entire process was, I mean, one, it was super exciting. I mean, I would not, you know, I sold to a, a NASDAQ listed company and that made it a totally different thing. You know, they sent in nine people for two days to do due diligence. And, and it was like, I mean, they were asking us questions that they knew stuff about our company that we did not know. Right. You know, they had the, they brought in all these accountants and then they took our QuickBooks and they like, you know, made 8,000 different scenarios and they were like, oh, what, what about this? And then, you know, it, I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot. It At was, any point when they were doing all of that, did you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't sell? No, I knew it was time for me. I, I woke up one day in March and I actually, I think it might've been a phone call with an author. And after that call, I was just like, you know, why am I, you know, I want to do some other things. And it was that, and I actually tried to, first I approached uh, my distributor of whom we were the largest customer and uh-huh. said, and I had lunch with them and, you know, we've known each other for years and we worked most of our 10 years relationship with no contract. It was just our agreement, you know, it was yeah. one, the only one I had like that. I was like, you know, I, I think I got to sell. It's time for me. I want to go do something else. So you should buy it. And we went back and forth and he didn't at the end, it was just too much. His company was about the size of mine, and yeah. it was it was you know he's fifteen years older than me, and he just couldn't. It was too stressful for yeah. him. So I then went and contacted the, the company who I sold to had offered to buy it a couple years earlier, and it just it wasn't right, and the deal wasn't right, and it the money was really pretty close, but the terms didn't work, and it just it it just didn't work, and I mm-hmm. still wanted to do some other things in that business, so I didn't sell. So I called up the only other person you know, who I thought possibly might be interested, and I just said, hey, you know, it's time. I just decided I'm selling. So if this is, you guys have an interest, now would be a good time. Mm-hmm. And to their credit, you know, they they came in pretty quickly, and they, you know, this was, I probably talked to him for the first time sometime in April, and by mid-July it was done. So that's... That's pretty quick. And you have to now tell your employees. Well, that part, I mean, that part was horrible. That that entire process, even just going through it. Do you think they knew when you were going through your due diligence? No, because we I did the due, um, I did the due diligence offsite. Okay. Because you know, I hire I hired people who have my kind of curiosity. So, you know, I mean. People would, if I had a meeting and I had uh, nine people, nine people in who nobody had ever heard of, and me and my two top people in there for two days in a row, everybody would think that. And I could not have that because if the deal didn't work, 
if the deal didn't go down, I don't want my employees to leave or my company to fall apart. I totally know how that you feel um, with that. And that was really surprisingly stressful for me. Was like, I felt like a traitor. Yes. I, I felt, felt like I wasn't taking care of my people and I was lying to them. Yes. I felt like, I felt like I was living a double life. Like, yes. I, like I had a separate family. Yeah. And you were like a secret agent <laughs> yes. and like the phone would ring and it was like, oh, excuse me. It's my lover or whoever oh. else. And then I did, I, I had one of my great employees um, and was there for the eight, one of my longest, it was there for eight years, sat right on a wall across, not but adjoining my office. Mm-hmm. And one day, she thought she heard me mention something about the sale of the company while I was in my office on the phone. So then I got a white noise thing from YouTube, and then I would play 102.5 rap music <laughs> anytime I was on the phone t- talking to the then seller. So I was like, uh, you know, oh. if you can hear this rap music, it's just because I don't want anyone to hear. Yeah. So you finally... You you close the sale. So we you have close to tell your employees. So we close the so we signed the agreement on July twentieth. The closing would be August first, but they wanted a ten day period to kind of ramp up. So when we close, they could just seamlessly take over. So the day that I signed it, we also had a quarterly meeting scheduled, and that was you know I I was kind of saying to the buyer like okay you know I can't have a quarterly meeting, and then the next day have another meeting. Yeah. So, and at these meetings, we would always give away awards and, you know, they were kind of, we'd talk about what we were, we were doing and they were all like to pump everyone up. So this one, I had to come in there and I just told them what happened and I could see on their faces at first, most people did not believe it. And then I learned later that apparently at other meetings of the same kind, I've, I'd come in there and said, oh, I just sold the company as a, <laughs> as a joke. <laughs> But then, you know, they saw that I was serious. and So you sold Hillcrest Media Group, which came with it, Mill City Press, all of the domains that you had. All the, I mean, there's a lot of websites, bookprinting.com, publishgreen, publish.com. And, then and you were the of... largest self-publisher in the country? No. No. I. You had a machine for self-publishing that was unlike any other. Right. We had, a, we, had, we had a great, we had a lot of great technology and we built our own ebook. Software and, yep. and in Minnesota, and, just so yes. funny and randomly, and we were like a high end brand. You know, yeah. they wanted us because we were a high end brand in this area. Yep. And now there's a race to the bottom in self publishing, where it's become a commoditized. You know, oh, just upload your Word document and you know whatever. Yeah. And that is not. You know that that's a. It's terrible for the industry that that has happened. Because you guys really gave a lot of consultation to the authors. A talk lot. about that. You would like talk to authors literally from a million different kinds of books. Tell Every, me some of your, like, you had the crazy people, you had the, like, really good books that came your way. We had some great, I mean, there were some great books. I, I, I've always described it as, like, America, self-publishing is a lot like American Idol. There's the 50% this is not their thing. And but some reason someone has said like, oh, you can write. Yeah. Or or you should write a book. Or, you know, they and not everyone while everyone has a story to tell, not everyone has a story to be published. Right. So fifty percent of the books are just not that great. And you know, they don't want to edit them or they can't really write or they don't use any periods, <laughs> which 
we've had a couple of those where there's no where the editors are no you know say no, I mean not a period or comma in the book, which is impossible to edit. And then there's probably about forty percent that are like a good bar band. You know, they're enjoyable when you when you read them, but when it's done, it's sort of you know the next week you don't you don't remember. Right. And then there's the ten percent that got missed along the way by the big publishers. And for us, a lot of those, not a lot, but some of those authors ended up going to bigger publishers. And some, you know, we have a, we had a guy who did a book about, I don't want to under, uh, I don't want to like undersell it, mm-hmm. but it was a book basically about friendship bracelets, how to make friendship bracelets and knots. Mm-hmm. And this guy, and he had a pretty big social media following and he was making 40000 a month in royalties. <gasps> That's amazing. Yeah. But that is, and then, you know, we did, um, we actually, and this is interesting, I almost put this on Facebook last night. So we did a book of a former KSTP radio host uh-huh. and now congressional candidate, Jason Lewis. Uh-huh. And it was not self-published. It was the one of the only books I ever bought the rights to. Okay. Uh, which I, and would be surprising given my political. Political leanings. But. But you're also a man of opportunity. Well, but I always liked, you know, I would listen to Jason and I, some of the stuff I like, even though I didn't want to like it, I did kind of like it. Yep. And, you know, if you ever met him, he's a one, he's a great guy. And I t- met him and said, you should self-publish this because, you know, you have a radio show and you got, you're syndicated. You know, this is a gold mine. This is who, this is the person who's, who should self-publish. He said, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to deal with that. Then I offered to buy the rights and we, you know, the, we published this book, and we held it back. So this was for the 2010 midterm election. So, so the book was supposed to come out. I mean, the official pub date was in January 2011, but from October 2010 until January, you could only get it through our website and yep. through Jason's website. So he would just get on the the first day it came out. He went on the air and said, "Hey everyone, I just published a book." And it broke our system because <laughs> our system could only send out like you know two thousand emails a day, but it had so we had so many orders and just sending out the thank you order the thank you emails broke the broke our thing and it was an, it was crazy that book did extremely well and now you know it's become a big issue in this in Jason's campaign yes because there's published. Well, some of that's from his radio stuff, but they took he made he made a comment about something in the book that was totally taken out of context and you know, we don't have to have a political discussion, but it was it was totally taken out of context. There's a thing in an ad where he says, Well, if you don't want to own a slave, don't own a slave. Yeah. But it was he was making a point about states' rights and it it was not based on like current right. law or anything um but but you have the book well not anymore <laughs> and you sold six thousand different you made or self-published six thousand different books Is i that think correct? it was you know the it's somewhere it's probably be somewhere between eight and eleven thousand of books that had came through in some way yeah. so like we might have just been the printer for a book or just the distributor but of books we actually published from beginning to end it was probably about six thousand so if someone is listening 
and they are thinking they're going to publish a book or be a self-publisher of a book, what would your like number one piece of advice or what would the steps be that you would be like, here's the gut check, people? Well, the first thing I would honestly do, and I have no financial benefit in this anymore, is I would go to Amazon and buy my book before it's out of print. If I Fine would. print of self-publishing. Sixth edition. Because yep. I, I go through there and tell you, and not only do I compare the companies, but I go through and tell the things that I think are important. Like, if you're not going to have the book professionally edited, there is no point. You might as well just write a blog. There's no point in putting out a book that's not professionally edited or professionally designed. Yep. And if you're, you know, I've often used the, uh, if you have an 11th grade son who just learned how to do design at high school, that is not the person who should make your book cover. No. But there is so much of that. Yeah, because people are cheap. They trip over nickels. Or they don't, uh, you know, one time we had this guy came in and he had published a book with some other self-publishing company. And the cover looked like it looked exactly like bridges of madison county so <laughs> he came well he so he came in and you know he was very disappointed in the results and i looked at the and so i didn't read the back of the book i just assumed by looking at that this is a small town love story but it turned out <laughs> that the book was about like a series of horrific rapes and some it, it was a novel but it was like a horror novel oh but he told whoever published the book this is my favorite little country bridge. So I want to make that the book cover. So those are things. And I, I, I always told authors that you, you know, I, I would use the thing. Like if I went to a doctor and the doctor said, oh, you need open heart surgery. I wouldn't go home and be like, oh, I'm going to look up on a YouTube video how to do this to yeah. myself. Um, and that is something that people who self-publish don't. They don't get how important that is. And there's so many moving parts to put out a book correctly that to, to do it with people who don't know what they're doing or aren't going to just do whatever you want. Obviously, at some point, you have to do what the author wants if you're being paid a fee to do it. But I always felt it was our, ob our obligation to tell them, give them the best advice. We talked once and I was like, oh, maybe I'll write a book about cancer. And you were just so funny. You were like... How here's how many thousands of books about cancers are in people in people's garage. Well, that's not to say that someone shouldn't do it because that can be very cathartic and there's other reasons. Sure. But people and we all think that what has happened to us in our lives is unique. Pe people want to read about and people don't really. Yeah. You know, people it, it's we you know, it, you have to really understand and I, that part of it when you're doing it and a lot of authors don't and they 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 never can. I was lucky in that when I published the fine print, I just went into it. I mean, I guess this is maybe more of a business philosophy. Just a well, and it's not a good business philosophy, but <laughs> I just assume. And I I had had so many until my other company, my business filing company that, that I sold, and this company. Every other business thing I did was a failure. My clothing company was a failure. I did another clothing company. It was a failure. Which is funny because I was talking to Dean Phillips last week from the Phillips mm -hmm. family. And, you know, you hear about the Talenti Gelato and you hear about Phillips and Belvedere. And for all of the ones you heard about that they made a lot of money on, there were ideas that they didn't. Every entrepreneur has their failed ideas. Yes. And I think that's probably what makes a good entrepreneur because a lot of those lessons I never forgot. And especially one that I always applied my own book 
and that was I used to own a company with these two guys from the WWF, and we sold their merchandise. And they were one of the few people that few wrestlers that own their own trademarks. Mm-hmm. So we were able to sell their stuff all over the world, and this was like a pre-internet, so we had a catalog, and <laughs> I mean, and you know, we bought ads at the ends of wrestling things, and you know, it, it did well. But there was a re- we went to this wrestling convention once in Philadelphia, so I just assumed like I'm bringing you know these two famous guys. Let's make unbelievable amounts of shirts, hats, you know. Foam shoulder pad. I mean, what you know, everything. Yeah. And we made, we brought. I mean, I don't know how much, how many thousands of dollars it cost us to ship this stuff, but then this thing, it had like a hundred people attended it. It was in like a high school gym. <laughs> you know, like they couldn't get anyone. And that lesson of having all that inventory and having to ship it back was one that I was never, I never forgot. So when I started publishing my own book, I would only print. 50 copies at a time. Right. For the fear of that happening. And it took many, it took maybe till the fourth edition to where I was printing, you know, a couple thousand at a time. Because <laughs> you didn't want to end up with them all in your garage. No. Um. All right. So you're a young man. You're in your young 40s. Well, I mean, not according to my 14-year-old niece and nephew. <laughs> But you are, a, I think you're a millionaire, so that's something that people strive for and think that's like, I, you know, when I'm a millionaire, it kind of feels like a dream until it happens to you. Does it change you? Um, yeah, I mean, yes. Because in what ways? Well, it's, I mean, when I sold my other business, I had done well. Yep. But selling this business, I had done like you don't ever have to work again well. Yes. And that that's a big difference. Yep. And will you not work again? I mean, I'm for sure going to work. I know. That's the funny thing but, about it. Most people say the same thing you have said. But I can do whatever I want to do at the level that I want to do it. And can I say, though, I think it's really challenging for entrepreneurs like yourself to I can do whatever I want to do. What really is that? How do you know? How do you get there? How do you oh. smell it or feel it oh. or recognize it when it's there? Oh, I mean, I know what I really love doing, and that was one reason I sold this company. So what do you want to do next? I am a really avid domain name buyer and seller and investor, and I love – it's an industry with a huge opportunity and huge growth. And huge risk. I mean, yes, huge risk if you're – if you don't know what you're doing, yes, there can be huge risks. So explain. So this is where you buy domain names that so, you think are going to have value. Like I read um, how much somebody bought Trump Pence. That was it. So someone, that was a big thing in the domain. I mean, now I had a couple Trump names also. Now I did sell Trumpty Dumpty for $600. <laughs> a little different than Trump Pence, which sold for 16000 at it? At an auction. But you got again Trump Pence. Uh, you know, it was someone who just bought it like if, you know a few months ago, yep, or you know three four months ago, and within three or four months, that name, you know, if Trump loses that election, that name is Worthless. that that name is will be dropped. The yep. guy won't even pay the eight dollar renewal fee. So that person put it at auction, and it would not have gotten that high. And, and again, the auctions are blind, so nobody knew that the campaign was bidding on it at this mm-hmm. auction. 
but that's why it went. It went for sixteen thousand dollars. So but, if you're you, are you like, okay, Trump, who could be potential running mates, and you try to figure out what those domain names would look like? I mean, I did that once, and I had McCainPalenti.com. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, I was like, you know, Palenti was like the number two after Palin to get that job. So I was like, you know, this is my... And and he really probably would have been a good pick for him. I, th- I you know, in retrospect, I think McCain maybe could have won that I election. think so too, actually. But anyway, I dropped that name the next year because it had no, it was worthless. Relevance, yeah. So I don't, I don't buy, I don't buy, I'm not a big buyer of political names. What's your category that you like, that you feel like you've got the sweet spot? You're, I know, a pop culture fan. Um, A little pop culture, not tons, but I have bought. Teresa and Joe, back from jail. <laughs> <laughs> I have bought, um. Some little catchphrases. I mean, I do own HumptyHump.com. Okay. Um, do the Humpty Hump. I do own that. I'm just trying to think. I own Snoopblog.com. I'm okay. a big Snoop Dogg fan. Um, Are you excited about his show with Martha Stewart? Oh, They're going to yes. have a cooking show together yes. on VH1. Yes. <laughs> um, so I buy a lot of brandable names that you know you might see two keywords that you could put together that make a brand like um like for instance I just sold bookengine.com okay uh, a couple of weeks ago for a pretty decent amount of money yep someone's going to do a self publishing uh, thing I, and... you know I have no sometimes I go and check to see like if they ever yeah. you know and they pay a lot if they ever use it but you know sometimes you know you a world with billions of people and it takes one person you know Again, a lot of these things can be impulse buys. I always try to set mine at the impulse, unless it's a really premium name, like I own fiction.com. Yep. So that is waiting for some brand or some publisher or somebody to come. You know, that's. Do you buy, like, so there's dot coms and then there's dot orgs and now there's dot nets and dot this and dot that. Do you buy all the, what are those things called, extensions? Yeah, GTLDs. I am not a, there's one extension that's good. It's called dot IO. That's good. Only in that a lot of tech startups and app companies use the .io okay. instead of, because they can't get the .com. So mm-hmm. I've I've done pretty well selling those kind of you know where it's a one word .io. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think of one I just sold. That would be a good example. Um, so it's almost like you're a commodities trader, kind of. Yes, it there, it's a lot. It's like the stock market, gambling, and absolute creativity all. Perfect for you. Yeah, I love. I love it, and you know, I love when I go to a domain conference. I feel the only place I feel more comfortable is when I go see Bill Maher on Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mark Levine, congratulations Thanks, on Stephanie the sale Hansen. of the company, and I have a feeling you've got a lot of cool things in your future. I know you, uh, you and I have talked about doing some other just fun podcasts and some fun things. I'm so ready for that. I am too. It's uh, it's been really fun doing podcasting and just getting people's stories. So, uh, someone you're gonna you're gonna find your bliss. You're gonna find what it is that you want to do. Do you think you will like start another company where you'll have employees and that whole route again? I find it, I, I find it hard to believe. Yeah. I mean, I would certainly invest in one, but I'm not. I don't want to ever run one again. That, I mean, I you know that can really take a lot out of you and make you make it hard to sleep at night. Yeah, and that ship And it's has a sailed. lot of stress. So yeah. that's that ship has sailed, but I would start one that had 
you know, two to five employees. That's and... how it starts. No, I know. It's <laughs> it's a sickness. All right. Thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Uh, it is uh, the fine print of self-publishing. Make sure you get that sixth edition before it goes out of print. And uh, it's Mark Levine, Hillcrest, Hillcrest Media Group. How do you want, if anyone wants to reach you with any ideas, how do you want them to reach you? Oh, LinkedIn. Okay. Mark Levine, LinkedIn. Okay. We'll be back.